0: I haven't done that in a long time. Yeah. You know, so it's been three time. weeks.
1: I know. Hi. Hi. As I said before, I'm Holly.
0: I'm Bill. Holly's, Holly's teaching assistant. <laughs> right,
1: right. That's right. It was a good hire.
0: <laughs> so it has been three weeks.
1: Yeah. I want to see this. Welcome book.
0: to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I'm glad you're here. And <clears throat> pardon me, thank you for hanging in with us during this long period of time it's, it's really meaningful that you are there and thank Holly for being here week after week and uh, I think we'll double your salary
1: <laughs> stop saying that it gives me too much
0: hope <laughs> so what do we need to say to people about whatever money podcast Well,
1: two things we've got a podcast it comes out on Thursday mornings if you've been um, following us on that we just we sometimes do a preliminary and talk through what we're going to do that sunday we also talk around it with what's going on in the world and sometimes we have guests so that's that those are always fun ones mm-hmm. um but check us out on itunes on our website and on spotify it's just an ordinary life podcast and also the, for those of you who have just continued to be a presence and Um, continue to support. We're so grateful in both your time and in terms of your contributions, because those contributions that you make through the website go toward really serving right now people who really need the support, especially with COVID, especially with economic downturn, especially with just life. So continue to press the donate button. It'll take you to a form. You put ordinary life in the memo and we go from there. Thanks so much again
0: and every every penny that anybody gives to this class goes for charitable causes mm-hmm. every penny
1: after the parts for the airplane then <laughs> we start giving some people sometimes going to
0: take that seriously yes, yes. bill
1: yeah. is not getting an airplane i just want a little asterisk by that it just is a joke
0: <laughs> so um anything else we need to say
1: no um we are working toward opening in person as the church moves toward that. Um, and we're working on a plan that will keep all of us safe and included, so.
0: And we don't have that developed yet.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So uh, since it's been um, a couple of weeks since we've seen each other in this context, uh, I wanna begin today with a little bit of um, an orientation. You know, we have been using the teachings of Jesus and Buddha to help us find both comfort and uh, challenge, direction, uh, resources during this time of COVID and lockdown and the weariness that we have experienced about systemic racism and a number of other things. And most recently, we have been doing a really deep dive into uh, what is known as the Lord's Prayer by guidance and, and we've been going line by line and today we are up to what the scholars say is actually the last line in the original prayer um, and I, I wanna show you some of the translations that we have for that.
1: I didn't know how to make this bigger. You had so much there but we'll, we'll go through it. <laughs> I have
0: a, not quite 30 different versions of the New Testament.
1: You are unbelievable. I have one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This petition originally had to do with money, Mm -hmm. but people didn't like that, so they changed it. Forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. Forgive our sins as we have forgiven those who sinned against us. Forgive us what we owe to you as we have forgiven those who owe anything to us. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. I think this is Eugene Peterson's. I'm not sure. Uh, Forgive us our shortcomings as we forgive those who failed in their duty toward us. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That is the one that we use in our liturgy here at St. Paul's. So there are a lot of different ways that this is um, translated. I have frequently describe my own teaching by using a metaphor that I'm sharing pictures of a journey that I have taken. And um, that may stimulate you to remember uh, some places where you've been on your own spiritual journey, or it may entice you to make a spiritual journey (laughs) of your own that you haven't been to. So today I want to begin by sharing some pictures uh, this is or Ormuaku. Well, actually, it's not him. It's a picture of him.
1: <laughs> All of it is just a projection.
0: <laughs> just, and and he and I have exchanged emails in the hopes of um, doing a webinar with us. I think I found out about this man. I usually butcher his name horribly. I think I, I, I you've heard me mention him many times. He... Turns out about a book a year, and it, it's amazing. I just, during the interval that we have been off, have purchased his most recent book. He is a very prolific writer. He, this is his most recent book, Doing Theology in an Evolutionary Way. I think I've now read seven or eight of his books. This, as I said, is his newest one, and it was in his book, Inclusivity. A gospel mandate and inclusivity is a mandate, if ever there was one. Uh, Then I learned about another writer, and um, I just want to say about reading these people, that the test of the truth of a spiritual teaching, whether it's something I say, Holly says, something you read, whatever, is whether it resonates with you, and if it does, you're on to something. And, and uh, the primary focus of ordinary life is adult faith development, just like that's what uh, Amuriku is. At any rate, it was in reading Amuriku that I found out about this guy. This is Nick Page. He, is, uh, he lives in England, uh, and he is a really great character. He has written over 80 books, and when the summary goes out, on Tuesday morning, I'll put a link to his webpage so that you can see him. The book of his that I got onto, to, thanks to Amuraku, is a book called A Nearly Infallible History of Christianity, Being a History of 2,000 Years of Saints, Sinners, Idiots, and Divinely Inspired Troublemakers. I love that title.
1: Yeah, yeah that I- alone is like... It resonates.
0: <laughs> so, Page describes himself as a writer speaker, unlicensed historian, information monger, and applied ranter. This is my kind of guy. I was just, gonna
1: I just say. love that. And I want yeah. to tell
0: you, this is one of the funniest and one of the most informative books I have read about the Christian faith in my entire life. I highly recommend it. You will laugh a lot and you will learn a lot. And and, uh, therein is my recommendation for today about a book. So I wanted you to know those two men and their writings because today we're going to begin to step in the very deep waters of forgiveness, inclusivity, redemption, and related matters, we're going to spend at least today and next Sunday and maybe the next one on this one petition uh, in, in the Lord's Prayer. Um, it, it, it's just so deep, and we have so much to cover in it.
1: Yeah. You know, something you said about resonating, that sometimes resonance is disturbance, right? That, yeah. Like being disturbed and yeah. sometimes um, it, with difficulty and sitting with that. If we find ourselves becoming defensive, it's good to pay attention to that.
0: <laughs> well, so, one of the yeah. one of the signs in the New Testament in miracles, when Jesus, uh, for example, uh, the water is disturbed before mm-hmm. people can be healed, and there's there's disturbance. Mm-hmm. Jesus gets disturbed. Somebody touches him, or there's a crowd, or something that rabble-rousers. So there's. It's also disturbance an analogy. In
1: a, Star Wars. There's a disturbance yeah, in the. Forest. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's a real thing. So I love the idea of being unlicensed historians, applied ranters. I wonder what our asterisk can be so that whatever we say, we're not held accountable for anyone's misinterpretation of it. Is that, is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> okay. When I read your title for this week, it felt like one of these lovely inexplicable moments of entanglement because even though different authors, I've been knee deep the last couple of weeks in writing comprehensive exams for my dissertation, and I've really been in deep consideration of what it means to be free. I've been deeply influenced recently by these three thinkers. First is James Baldwin. Hmm, maybe our thing's not working. There we go. There we go. Um, he is an incredible writer, sharp, um, direct, and a a consistent muse for me. And he makes me simultaneously uncomfortable, refreshed, excited, and dismayed. He resonates Robert E Burt another writer philosopher who um, wrote this book the libertary thought of Martin Luther King jr which could also be titled the liberatory thought of Jesus Christ I don't know if Jesus was a junior but specifically his essays on the quest for freedom as community and another called the bad faith of whiteness really Mm. really struck me and third Um, contemporary uh, social critic and feminist uh, author. She really considers love as the most important topic that we should be talking about in the public and political sectors. She says we don't take it seriously enough. This is Bell Hooks, and she's still alive, um, and I agree with her. We need to take love seriously. So as we move through this line in the Lord's Prayer, I'll come back to each of these people this week and next and how they've inspired me. I'll start, though, with talking about my little kid experience with this line. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I think the Methodist Church has always used trespasses. Am I correct? Uh, Yes. Yeah, so that's that's what I knew growing up. Um, If you're a kid with a lisp, this is a really tough line. Mm -hmm. I was not a kid with a lisp, but my youngest has a pretty pronounced lisp. He would really struggle with this. Somehow, though, whether we go to church or not, and even if we don't, and we're remotely exposed to the Christian faith, we know something about the Lord's Prayer. We know of it. We know a line from it. We know the whole thing. In high school, um, my non-denominational high school said it every week in a non-denominational chapel. So as a kid, I had a vague idea of this line, even if I didn't have the prayer memorized and I always equated it, uh, this is a confession, with a neighbor, Mrs. Gill, and I was a little bit afraid of her. We didn't go in her yard. We made a wide berth around it. We didn't climb her really inviting large tree, and if we a ball rolled into her yard, we would kind of dare each other, who's going to go get it? She just... We, She just wasn't out very much. We didn't know her. And this is really awful, and this is what I really need to ask forgiveness for, but during Hurricane Alicia, I situated myself by a window that looked over her large tree, and I kept hoping it would fall, which is (laughs) terrible. I did not want it to kill her. That was not my hope. I wanted it to—I wanted to see her house get crushed just badly enough for her to move. I mean, that— that's a terrible confession, so I'm just putting it out there. Um, that's really what I need forgiveness for right now. She was not a mean lady. She never did anything mean. She just, just wasn't out. She wasn't involved in our lives, and so she was, I created all kinds of mythology, which was probably far more exciting than the reality. So when I think of trespassing, I think of her property and how intentional I was about not trespassing on it. So even though what I've described is very literal about a physical trespassing, what my little kid self was afraid of was the other, Mm. someone who seemed different from me. If we do not course correct this, this is a trespass of the mind, revisit and examine this thinking, then we remain estranged or separate from one another. We create these artificial, existential boundaries that are very difficult to break down. These are the trespasses from which we need to seek forgiveness, the ones that block us from love. Today, of course, or at least hopefully, my thinking has evolved. I don't sit by windows and hope trees will fall on people's houses anymore. Um, I don't see this as about trespassing someone's property. I see it as about atonement, an atonement at one minute is the condition of being at one with others. And one of the first synonyms for atonement I found was interesting is reparation. And the Latin for reparation, reparare, is the act of making amends. I want to think for a second about the things that some of us may lovingly repair. Old cars. Some people have a deep habit around there. I was at someone's house doing a consultation once and they had three old Porsches in there. In their garage and that was that was his hobby and so this this loving attention to old cars old furniture I have talked in here about redoing old doors and just finding the bare wood that could be a hundred years old underneath that door and the satisfaction of doing that with my hands old houses in my neighborhood in the Heights many of the houses are restorations of old houses and they've been made new shoes there's a, do you guy. you remember the shoe hospital in the corner of bisonette and kirby
0: it's still it's there it's still
1: there and i i have taken birkenstocks there i taken. you know but i haven't in a long time but that people repair old shoes you get a good worn pair of shoes you don't want to give it up um, my favorite pair of jeans i still have even though it has holes all over the place i just can't bear to part with them so these things that we repair we have become attached to and the thing I've been wondering is, what keeps us from repairing relationships with people? What keeps us from healing these existential boundaries that we've crossed? Is it a sense of belonging, and do we not feel like we belong to one another? So my question is, how do we become unestranged to each other? How do we become known? That's what I've been thinking about these last couple weeks.
0: Well, you know, this, and we'll get into this next week. But this petition really does have to do with exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about, about concrete reparations where mm-hmm. they're needed. It's a it's a petition about justice. Absolutely. And, and, and um,
1: justice is always love. Justice is always love. So
0: um forgiveness uh and and, and let, let's talk about this guy. <laughs> uh this is Enselm. He was born in 1033 and died in 1109, and this guy is responsible for the most successful piece of bad theology ever written. And since Easter, which we just celebrated, is an excellent time for this bad theology to surface, now may be a time for us to talk about it. Anselm was uh, once a scholar in the Cathedral School of Tours, This is during the time of the church's history when um, monasteries were coming into being. Monasteries were attached to churches. They became places where people could go and get an education. Men, boys could. Women were excluded. Uh, Later, Anselm would become the Archbishop of Canterbury. And one of the things that he is known for is his famous ontological argument, for the existence of God. Now, see if you can follow this. He argued that God can be defined as the greatest thing imaginable. Things that really exist by definition are greater than things that can be imagined. Therefore, God must exist because otherwise he would not be the greatest thing imaginable. As Nick Page says in his book, this is an argument that is so circular, you could use it as a hula hoop.
1: I feel like that's what a lot of theology of of old does, is just confuse us into thinking that it's true.
0: Well, you know what John Tucker says in his book on Zero Theology is, um, theology is part, the, the poorest way to understand the <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. So we're talking about Anselm today because, as I said, we're stepping into this territory of, among other things, um, forgiveness. Anselm's most influential work is called Why God Man? And it was his attempt to work out why God had to become man and die on the cross. Up until that time, and this was an equally bad piece of theology, piece of bad theology, it was believed, seriously, that Satan held the human race captive and that Jesus' death paid a ransom price so that humans could be free. This is called the ransom theory of salvation. And not even to Anselm did that make sense. I mean, if God is really big and powerful, right, God could just go kick down the door of hell and let people out. But uh, that's not what was thought up until the time of Anselm. And he came up with this theory that humans were just a sorry lot (laughs) and that everybody had dishonored and disobeyed God, that dishonoring and disobedience is called sin, And God just can't overlook that. So if sin were no big deal, then no one would be motivated to do good and avoid evil. So God had to receive some kind of satisfaction for the sin that humans committed. Now, while humanity owes God satisfaction, according to Anselm, none of us is good enough to pay it. So... After all, you've got to remember, we're a bunch of sinners, and only God is great enough to pay the price to God. So what God did was enter the world as Jesus, then offered himself up to be killed, and this made satisfaction for God, for the human race. Now, this theory, I might add, was influenced by the political economic system of the day, which was the feudal society, where honor was restored by satisfaction, one sort or another. When I was in seminary, I was taught over the long history of the Christian movement, there have been at least seven different theories trying to explain why Jesus died on the cross. But none has stuck. Like Anselm's. Mm. And there is no telling how much damage has been done, both to individuals and to individuals' understanding of God, than by this perverse theory. Jesus died for your sins. That's what people have been taught. That's perverse. But the belief that has been instilled in many, many, many people is that before God could love, God needed and demanded the death of Jesus to atone for our sins. Over and over and over, I have heard Richard Rohr say that Jesus did not come to change God's mind about humans. Jesus came to change humans' minds about God. I don't don't know how to say this any clearer, but the, the theory of substitutionary atonement is not in the Bible. It was not the Jewish understanding of Jesus. The only way that one can read it into the Bible is to become oblivious to how the Jews understood and handled their own sacred text and to forget the historical context in which Mark, as well as the other early stories, were put together. There is not a single word in the teaching of Jesus that we have that even hint at the possibility of truth in this bad theology. Um, I heard Shelby Spong standing in this very room years ago say, we must put an end to atonement theology or there will be no future for the Christian faith. Those are powerful words, but I believe that they're true
1: it the the one word that sticks out to me the most in listening to you is denial that what we have become is very comfortable with a certain kind of denial of personal responsibility of sort of shaping our lives in a way that is intentional loving and open mm-hmm. and to to sort of say oh well thank god for god is to say there's nothing I have to do here.
0: It cheapens the whole. It cheapens everything about the the spiritual journey. If you're if you're going to work out your relationship, uh, I call it working out your relationship to the sacred with through the lens of the Jesus teaching and the Jesus story. It cheapens it to say, you know, Jesus died. That gets me off the hook. All I have to do is believe in that. I'm home free. Mm-hmm.
1: So then we work harder on our belief rather than on our behavior. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's powerful stuff. And I think, you know, substitutionary atonement did a number on me for years. It was something that um, I really wrestled with. I compare myself to Jacob a lot in the wrestling the angel kind of grappling with these things. Uh, it, It did not ever resonate with me, to be honest, and caused a lot of angst and almost caused me to leave the Christian church entirely. I'm a parent now, and I guess the question that always plagued me was what kind of parent, in this case God, would allow for the murder of their child, in this case Jesus. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to deny the impulse, but to act on that impulse, to allow for that impulse to happen, you have to be in a really dark, desperate, and alone place. If that were the case for God, I would recommend divine depth psychology Mm. and not that we create an entire theology around it. I don't think God intended Jesus to be sacrificed for us on the cross Mm. and quite brutally, but really smart people do believe this. And I've been wondering about this denial. What are we in denial of? And do we suffer from this kind of collective denial around taking personal responsibility feeling appropriate guilt, and taking the steps to atone. Is our shame that big that we'd rather place it at the feet of someone else rather than peer under our own hood? Let's call it the old car that we wanna repair. So for me, some of that reparation has to do with restoring or being really honest with ourselves about our history and how do we atone for the people that have been harmed by a dominator colonialist history. I listened to you say something like, Jesus was actually issuing an invitation to come back home Mm -hmm. to the self. And I experienced two things at once, deep sadness and profound hope. I feel sadness because we are so estranged and so exiled from one another in this country, we have adopted a predominantly individualistic theology that centers around a personal relationship to Jesus that culminates in individual salvation. This is bad faith. This is what Robert Burke called the bad faith of whiteness, that it is centered around individualism. Mm-hmm. It is a re- it's re—it's also reinforced in our social world, and our political constructs, this concept that I matters more than we. This concept of white life mattering more than others is a is is kind of the theory of our of our country here's what robert ebert writes about what he calls that bad faith of whiteness and and i want to say that whiteness here is not like we can't undo skin color nor should we even try but it's a it's an idea about the self that again i am separate from you and our american culture is very stuck on individualism and i want to take a second to distinguish between individualism and individuality. Individualism is the focus on the self, what's in the self interest. Individuality is the uniqueness of the self that can be held in community, held, nurtured, and grown in community. So the the individual self is always connected to community. We are not alone. So he writes, bad faith is clearly self-deception. If it is from myself that I am hiding the truth, then what is this truth that I am hiding? A truth one hides from oneself is a truth concerning the self. It is from some aspect of one's own being that one flees. But we must recognize that the self is not a monad of self-contained essence it is in relations with others that one becomes a self. Hence, a hiding from oneself also implies a hiding from others. This resonates with me, as difficult as it is to sort of untangle. When we are hiding from ourself, we are hiding from others. And Jesus is inviting us to kind of come out of hiding. This is the hopeful part. The sad part is that we're separate, the hopeful part is that there's an invitation. I think about this right now in this very strange context of the world that we've been in specifically for the last year. So many of us long for some taste of normalcy, for regathering in spaces, to do the wave at a baseball game and high five each other, to stop kind of orbiting each other's bodies as if we're two electrons that can never touch or hug. Along for these things, and at the same moment, I have some tremendous anxiety about them. We're like horses right now, like, what do they call it? Chomping at the bit, pushing against that gate, ready to be released to run. And my body is kind of habituated right now toward hiding, toward isolation. And to think about coming out of this feels really vulnerable, especially because this year has been so emotional on so many levels. It's like blinking back a very bright light. Some things that have happened this year have shaken my little family, have shaken my little boy's worlds in ways that none of us wanted to anticipate. And I feel myself even a little mistrustful of how that can be held in the broader community. I feel really tender and rough around the edges. I have one son who just loves the world he's like so free in himself he plays in the front yard and loves the sort of movement of his own body he's intrigued by mystery and things he cannot see and animals he'll never become (laughs) he's just kind of this sweet quirky kid I have another son who also really loves the world but he's like with this extroverted kind of in your face big personality who climbs neighbors fences when he's not supposed to and asks them for food (laughs) They both love the world, and I'm terrified for them that the world will not love them back. Mm. I hear people say all the time, well, we're just ready to move on from that. Let's lean into hope. We just can't talk about racism all the time. Stop talking about injustice. It's hard. It is hard. This is so true, and this is one of those kind of hopeful and despairing moments Um, Part of me wants to stay in hiding because I feel really tenuous about holding on to hope at times that we can move past something. But I also think it's possible to feel hope and despair at the same time. And this to me is probably the quintessential message of the resurrection or the redemption is around integrating opposites and holding holding two things that are so different at once. And I want to have hope that if we can stop hiding from one another, if we can stop othering others by minimizing their pain or refusing to see reality from different perspectives, that we can repair our relationships. Part of my hope is actually centered around our ability to deal and hold pain, the pain of loss, So many lives have been lost in the last year, not just of the actual death, but also of the fluidity that we are used to in friendships and relationships, the pain of racism that is like embedded in the bones of this country, the pain of not yet knowing how to do it differently, sitting in that in-between, and how to reimagine new and more beautiful worlds. I think this is part of what trespasses means to me how we have hurt and how we have been hurt. This is dreary, but pain also reminds us that we are alive, that we feel, Mm -hmm. and that we love. It doesn't let us deny. So this pain is hopeful for me. I don't know how to say that nicely. Pain is hopeful for me. (laughs) I think of birth, probably one of the most extremely painful experiences I've had, And the sweet relief that follows it. James Baldwin, who I mentioned earlier, wrote in 1972 in his epilogue to No Name in the Street. This was after he was really saddened by the sort of what he called the failure of of a black liberation movement, the death of Malcolm X, the death of Martin Luther King, the Vietnam War, so many things sort of catapulted. But he wrote, an old world is dying and a new one Kicking in the belly of its mother announces that it is ready to be born. This birth will not be easy, and many of us are doomed to discover that we are exceedingly clumsy midwives. No matter, so long as we accept that our responsibility is to the newborn, the acceptance of responsibility contains the key. So I kind of want to think of us like midwives, artists, abolitionists, What is needed to free ourselves from hiding, to create centers of belonging where individuality, not individualism, can thrive and grow? What is needed to usher this newborn into the world? So this is also the message of the season, redemption, reparation, atonement. To forgive our trespasses is not about creating more physical boundaries, but removing the existential ones that keep us separate.
0: So Mr. Anselm has affected our our thinking in the church in many ways, whether you've ever heard of him or not, you are learning that today. When I was in the seminary, um, I got a line of his that I just read and ran with. Anselm said that theology is faith seeking understanding. And I loved that definition. Um, it was precisely what I wanted to do at the time. It's what I thought I was doing, getting involved in depth psychology, reading the works of Carl Jung, uh, reading the theologians that I was reading at the time, Paul Tillich, Carl Barth, Rudolf Bultmann, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick was doing his preaching in Riverside Church in New York. And those were the things... That just really juiced me up. John A. T. Robinson's book, "Honest to God," was written during this time, and though the Jesus Seminar was not founded until the '80s, the 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 men and when women uh, who. who um, I'm thinking primarily of Karen Armstrong, they were doing their work then and it was being made known to people who were in uh, seminaries. And as I have said many, many, many times, one of the saddest things is that all this great scholarship did not make it into the curriculum of the average church Sunday school, which is where people learn things. Um, I, I just... All that world was just so exciting to me and and opening up. But when Anselm said theology is faith-seeking understanding, he didn't mean what I meant by it. Because at the time, what he meant by theology was the teaching of the church. And you can see by these theories of the atonement, that some of the teaching of the church was about as wrong and damaging as it could possibly be. And he also meant what was in the Bible. Well, people didn't have the Bible when Anselm said this. There was the Vulgate, which is written in Latin, which even most of the priests could not read. Most of the priests were illiterate at this time. And if you wanted to carry the Bible around, you'd need a wheelbarrow. It was so big to do so. <laughs> um, the, the, the Bible didn't take kind of the shape that we know it today until much, much later, before Martin Luther uh, and other theologians and writers came in to play a part in that. Um, <clears throat> today, as I said, I have almost 30 versions of the New Testament available to me. So what does it mean right now to say that theology is faith seeking understanding. And I'm going to suggest that doing theology focuses not on content, as in trying to prove something, like the right doctrine, because that's been so damaging. But rather, I want us to think about doing theology as the context in which we do it. And there are, in my opinion and uh, I borrowed some of this from Umuruku. Um it, it, These are the things I think we need to keep in mind as we try to navigate this period between the no longer and the not yet. What makes up the container in which we do our theological thinking? And one of them is um, a stance of post-colonialism. Now, I'm not sure this is the right word, uh, I couldn't uh, think of another one. I don't mean, it's something more than multicultural. Mm. It's something more than inter-religious. Um, I'm trying to get away from an understanding that is defined by white male folk religion.
1: So liberation philosophers, which I've been reading a lot of lately, call it pluriversality.
0: Pluriversality.
1: So the pluriverse, plurality. Being able to hold multiple realities, faiths, religions, cultures, races at once. So instead of universality, like there's one answer for everything, the pluriverse says, no, there's many answers, mm-hmm. many people, many expressions.
0: That's good. Mm-hmm. Pluriversality.
1: Pluriversality. I'll spell it. For it's you. a brand
0: <laughs> new word to me. Yeah. Um, Okay, so what I mean, part of what I mean here is that um, if you read Nick Page's book on this infalli- nearly infallible history of Christianity, you will see that since the 4th century until this present moment, much of Christian theology has been shaped by the wedding between the church and government. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, in the first yeah. many centuries of the church's life, The important councils, Council of Nicaea, for example, Mm -hmm. where we got the Nicene Creed, those were called by emperors, not by church leaders. And the emperors were the ones who picked the popes.
1: Yeah.
0: Or the popes were the ones who bought their positions from the government. Mm -hmm. And, And there's been this wedding, and we have pretended that it didn't take place it doesn't exist. It's what Jackie
1: it, Lewis called the empiring of Jesus. Yeah. Right?
0: <laughs> Commodified. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, but uh, since the beginning of organized Christianity, it's just been, um, we got to move beyond that. We have to find a way to uh, allow our understanding of what it means to be free and loving, uh, not to succumb to the love of power.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's what's going on in our culture right this minute. <clears throat> and what Jesus was about was the power of love. Mm-hmm. There's a, a world of difference between those two stances. Um, look at what this wedding between the government and um, the, the church, if you want to call it, well, look at what it's gotten us. Women have been left out. People on the edges and the bottom have been neglected. Um, this is not good. So we have to do theology in a way that is beyond uh, colonial systems. Um, we have to not let the culture tell the church who's in and who's out. And I, this is not my notes, I didn't intend to get into this today, but... <laughs> <clears throat> you notice there's a big emphasis right now on um, passing laws against transgender people.
2: Yeah.
0: A buddy of mine, who's quite a, a great mind, says um, the reason that the church, the government, see the see the connection between those two yeah. here, yeah. the reason that the church government has gone after transsexual people is that they know they've lost the battle against LGBTQ. Mm. And so this is a place where they can take a stand. It's fascinating.
1: And that is exactly where we need to stand with with the edge.
0: With the edge. If
1: we define ourselves as Christians or followers of Jesus, then we say that we're there with you.
0: So yes, and, and what we're saying is that our theology must focus on empowering all people and, and get away from, um, An understanding of God, who is some imperial father like figure who withholds love. Mm -hmm. That's what atonement theology is about. Rather than seeing, as Jesus taught, that God is an energizing spirit who draws forth from people uh, the empowering possibilities to enhance and enrich the earth and all upon it, all Mm -hmm. upon it, not just humans. We're just a little blip (laughs) in the created order. The second thing that must shape spiritual consciousness in going forward is a trust and faith in the wisdom of science. Now, I'm sure you've heard in the face of the last four years of debunking science and uh, the need to have um, faith in the efficacy of what the scientists are currently telling us about COVID-19. Its variants in the vaccines that we should trust the science. And I gotta say, it is a huge relief that science is beginning to be taken seriously. The health of people and the people of the world and the planet depends on science being taken seriously. <clears throat> However, science is not about trusting science. Science is the disciplined distrust of science. Peter Abelard, who followed Anselm, this is Peter Abelard, so that you have a picture of him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the most interesting, interesting story, this guy had a really, really, really tragic love affair. And as a result of the tragedy that happened to him, he entered the monastery and became a monk. And he said, it is by doubting that we come to investigate and by investigating, we come to recognize the truth. I like that, mm-hmm. that's good. Um, he understood the crucifixion, by the, by the way, as an example of sacrificial love. So his was another theory of the crucifixion that happened after Anselm's, but his, his didn't stick. You may have seen this article in the paper this week in the New York Times about an example of science mistrusting science the headline reads a particle's tiny wobble could upend the known laws of physics this is a front page story in the new york times my hunch is that this is one of the few churches where this story is getting (laughs) any credence today the article states that there are forms of matter and energy vital to the nature and evolution of the cosmos that are not yet known to science. And it is this not knowing Mm. that spurs the scientist on to continue searching. So also must it be with our theology. Think how many beliefs, both so-called secular beliefs and religious beliefs, are held on to, based on disconnected shreds of evidence and discredited theories. I have in mind um, people who disbelieve science, the climate change, who disbelieve in evolution, who believe in theories of intelligent design. There is a healthy skepticism that is crucial to doing our work. And that healthy skepticism is called science and the theology that will be useful going forward is one that recognizes the um, reality of evolution we have to wonder if the systems that we have in place are trustworthy and good for all people and if not what are, what are better systems we we are living in this context where everything is changing The cells in your body change. You get a new body every seven years, isn't it right?
1: (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. Your blood the blood cells recycle and remake.
0: So I'm suggesting that we hold Jesus in higher regard than doctrine. Jesus love for his God as revealed by his words and deeds, and not by the interpretation of a twelfth century frustrated male. Trusting Jesus and love, as Holly has said, is what is going to lead us into a wiser and more useful theology. Now, be aware, and I have more to say about this before we're done today. They killed Jesus for heresy. The system, both religious and political, colluded and conspired to ex- execute him. For expressing Judaism in a manner that went against the doctrine of the day. For the fact that he declared love to be the supreme law. Love is the ultimate reality. Religion is not. And, and so this, this moving into evolution, um, and Holly can talk about this much better than I. But uh, I think that embracing evolution means embracing three things. Um, that everything changes, mm-hmm. nothing is stable, all the time, there's change all the time. Part of this change is natural, and it includes death. Of all the world's religions and from most of its history, Christianity has held a very distorted view of dying and death and has even said, you know, there's a way you can get around death.
1: <laughs> Just believe this.
0: You believe? Mm -hmm. Well, your body might die, but your soul won't. You'll go flit off and Mm -hmm. circle the earth for a while and then (laughs) make a right turn and go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Or if you're liberal, you'll make a left turn and go to heaven. We die. And that's part of the evolutionary process. Embracing evolution really does lead to a life of hope, I think. Um, And if we don't, Embrace it. It leads to a distraction of what our real work here is—to work for freedom and love in behalf of all people everywhere and for the whole planet. This is the context in which I think we have to do our work: post-colonial, a faith and trust in science, and, and embrace, an embrace, enthusiastic embrace of evolution.
1: Mm-hmm. It's you know, I, I love. I could talk about evolution for a very long time, but. Um evolution is in sort of two strands and, and death of, of a self or death of a species because of extinction is not an end, it's a change, it's right. a new beginning, it's a transformation. Um, death of a species that is caused by human intervention. So I, I love elephants, you know that. <laughs> when I was little I used to tell everyone I wanted to be an elephant. Uh, it didn't happen. Um, but today, 30% of African elephants are evolving without tusks as a response to poaching.
0: I didn't know that.
1: Yep. That's, the, that's what evolutionary scientists think, that, that those who have a better chance of survival do not have tusks, so they're passing that on to their offspring. Amazing. So evolution is, is change, but evolution is also creativity. Death is not an end but a different beginning. And evolution is not just around species evolution. It must be in our words and in our thoughts and in our consciousness too. That is also part of evolution. How do we change the way we think about things? Even what Jesus said 2000 years ago needs to evolve into today's context so that it, so that it stays post-colonial. So you said love is ultimate reality. Mm-hmm. I believe that I I really do and and love is not what we think it is it's not just the pursuit of happiness inside of a relationship but a process of unmasking and I don't mean that in the Governor Abbott kind of way I mean (laughs) um, (laughs) I mean that love is the practice of freedom from domination and domination of any kind does not follow a love ethic and love is a kind of consciousness that takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. I'll read that one more time. Love is a kind of consciousness that takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. It is to be afraid sometimes, but also to be hopeful that we can learn to live in that space. To the first point, I've detailed in here before the path of universe formation from differentiation to specification to communion. Communion is not sameness, just like unity is not sameness. It's the pluriversality idea of the universe. And love is not homogeneity. In other words, it doesn't look one way. It is the ultimate complexity. Love involves evolution change, daring, and growth. And like that wobble of the atom that could upend the known universe, love is unknowable, vulnerable, but it's also possible. I think of, again, how this relates to the Easter season and love is almost always a kind of death. And as in the points above, love is death to domination, to desires of the ego, and individualism over community. Love is death to everything but the true self. I I just feel, that's where I feel hope, is imagining communities that can embrace people's true selves. Mm -hmm. And I think we're capable of that. So this rebirth is a choice that we make every single day. We choose to love. And it was M. Scott Peck who said, love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. That's the ultimate story of that one myth. So as we move forward with this teaching, I will take a deeper dive in the next few weeks of the relationship between love and freedom.
0: So the evolution of my own thought and teaching in here, I've talked about this before, um, the critical shift happened at 9-11 mm. because I saw the danger that fundamentalism is and it's getting worse instead of better in our culture in our world mm. there's a move to the right um, and the, you know we can explain it by saying that people are anxious and they need security and all that sort of thing but when I began to bring the insights of current biblical scholarship into the teachings here in Ordinary Life, someone asked me if I didn't think that debunking the Bible wasn't harmful to people. (laughs) After all, the person said, these beliefs give people comfort. What can be so bad about that? I do not remember now what I said in response to that. But now what I would say is that false beliefs give people false comfort. And I don't think that anything that you have heard me or Holly say today is debunking the Bible. And I certainly don't want what I've said today about the falsity of the substitutionary theory of the atonement to take anything away from the mystery that is at the heart of the Christian experience. And by that, I mean the events which ended Jesus' life on this earth. His betrayal, his execution, his death, those things that our Roman Catholic mystic friends call the sorrowful mysteries. This is uh, Salvador Dali's painting of Christ of St. John of the Cross. We saw this painting in the museum in Glasgow, Scotland where it it hangs. It's a powerful painting I think. Mm -hmm. So what can we say about Jesus on the cross? A good man is destroyed by the powers of this world. Now surely that's an archetypical human experience. Whether we're talking about a black man who is unjustly shot a young parent struck down in the prime of life by whatever cause, an innocent child taken out by disease, poverty, or the violence of war. These things call forth our deepest feelings of empathy. I'm thinking about the 25 people in that van who tried to cross the border coming mm-hmm. from Mexico into the United States. And if we're honest, if we look at these situations, they, they, they also call forth not only our empathy... But in many cases, our most profound sense of remorse. Mm -hmm. I look at Jesus on the cross and I see my deepest shadows reflected there. I can identify with every person in the drama who put him there. Mm -hmm. Peter who denied him, Judas who betrayed him, Pilate who washed his hands of him, the Roman soldiers who were only doing their job, the fickle crowd that went from cheers to jeers, those who ran away and deserted him except for the women
1: who mm. stayed.
0: Who of us wasn't involved in that drama? And who isn't involved today in the untold injustices that are all around us? Now this story has been used to stir anger and fuel anti Semitism. It has been used to induce personal guilt. Jesus died for your sins, you know. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: If it weren't for you. It's been used to stir up fanatical devotion. Jesus was never interested in any of that. Jesus was not interested in your guilt. Jesus did not want you or, or us to worship him. What he was interested in was getting people to make the passage, though it's called the straight and narrow way, into the kind of relationship with sacred mystery that he had. And he was very upfront about the fact that walking that path, going through that narrow gate, could cost you. It did him. He didn't want to arouse empathy. He wanted to create empowerment. He wasn't interested in making people feel guilty, nor did he want people to worship him. He wanted to deepen people's relationship to the sacred. Now, if you're willing to work with those understandings, his life and death began to make sense in a whole new way. Now, what that means for me, you'll have to decide for yourself, (laughs) is that in my own spiritual work, I've got to get more and more involved on a regular basis with what it means to die to self, to die to the ego, to, to recognize that my ego is not who I truly am. So we're, <clears throat> we're going to uh, continue talking about this particular line in the, in the prayer. But the bottom line today for you to take away from this, God is not angry. To claim that the God of Jesus demanded human sacrifice makes that God a monster. God is not a monster. There's no monster out there, only love. Love waiting to set us free and love seeking to get us connected to each other. We'll talk more about that next week. Mm. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and Holly and I will see you here next week.
2: Yep.